Uh, and once again, a very warm welcome uh, to St. Mary's this morning. Uh, can I get you to turn with me, please, to our Old Testament reading from uh, Genesis 37? Genesis 37 on page 36 and 37 of the Church Bibles. Page 36, 37. There's an outline of where we're going in the center of the bulletin. So if you open up to the center of the bulletin, there's a sermon outline there. Um, but most importantly, page 36, 37, Genesis 37. Uh, we're beginning a new series uh, in Genesis. We got up to chapter 36 last year, around this time. Uh, and this, this uh, year we'll continue from 37 uh, to the end of the book. And it's a the section of Genesis entitled, The Generations of Jacob. You see that in verse 2, because it's about Jacob's family, even though the main character here is uh, Joseph. So having got that ready, let me lead us in prayer, uh, and we'll begin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us by your Spirit, through your Word. And we ask now that um, even as you've been speaking to us, as your Word was read, that your Spirit would continue to be speaking to us as we consider uh, this passage this morning. We pray that he will enable me to preach your Word rightly and in his power. And we pray that he would open each of our hearts uh, that we might see Jesus, uh, that we might turn to him and love him and obey him. And so we commit this time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. The year was about 1900 B.C. Jacob and his family were living in the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised would one day be theirs. If we had been around then, we probably wouldn't have thought that Jacob was a terribly important person. Uh, but he was, because God had promised his grandfather Abraham that he would bless him, that he would give him many descendants, and he would give the descendants this land, and even more significantly, through him, all the families of the earth were going to be blessed. Jacob's father Isaac had been heir to this promise, and God had appeared to Jacob himself and confirmed it to him as well. One of Jacob's 12 sons was a 17-year-old boy named Joseph. Joseph was his favorite son, whom he loved more than the others. He wasn't Jacob's oldest son. In fact, he was number 11. Only his brother Benjamin was younger than he. Joseph and Benjamin shared one more thing in common. They had the same mother, Rachel. The other sons were from Leah, Jacob's other wife, and from Rachel and Leah's servants, Bilhah and Zilpha, who are by now considered wise as well. Joseph was not popular with the rest of his brothers. In fact, that's a bit of an understatement. That They hated him. At the end of verse 2, we read that he brought a bad report of them to their father. And so we know that they had been disobedient sons in, in a way that Joseph had not been. His father, Jacob, also known as Israel, loved him. And he loved him, verse 3, more than any of his other sons because he was a son of his old age. And Jacob presented him a special role at the end of verse 3. Now we don't 
not quite know how to translate that there, how, that, how to describe the specialness of that robe, whether it's actually a robe of, robe of many colors or a robe with long sleeves or a richly ornamented robe. The only other place in the Bible where we see that phrase is, it's, well, it's what King David's princesses wear, suggesting perhaps a, a link with royalty. But whatever the case is, this robe marks Joseph as a special son. He is different from all his brothers. And when his brothers see that the father loves him more than, than all the others, they, they hate him all the more. In fact, at the end of verse 4, it says that they, they, they couldn't speak peacefully to him, that they couldn't have a civil conversation. And we know what that's like, don't we? There are times when we ourselves feel jealousy. When we see people who are gifted in some way that we are not, or who move forward in some role that we were keen for, or succeed in some way where we struggle or, or have things that we don't have, we, we are tempted to hate them. And we know it's not right, but our sinful hearts push us in that direction. Especially if, in our opinion, they are less than gracious in the way they wear that success. Joseph was a son who was loved by his father and hated by his brothers. And then in verse 5, we're on our next point, something happens that makes them hate him all the more. He has a dream, and he tells them about it. He says in verse 6, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Now the brothers kind of know what this means. And they don't like it. They say in verse 8, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you intended to rule over us? And they hate him even more. And then he has another dream, and he hasn't learned his lesson from last time. And so he goes and shares with the brothers again. He says in verse 9, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, 11 stars were bowing down to me. And this time the father finds out as well. He tells the father. The father's not impressed either. Jacob scolds him in verse 10. What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your, and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Again, you can understand how they feel, isn't it? We don't want people ahead of us if we think they're meant to be behind us. You know, if in our own mind we consider them as leaders, ah, no problem lah. But if we consider them like if they're younger than us or junior to us or inferior to us in some way, ah, then we can very easily get jealous. We will later discover that this dream was actually indeed revealing God's plan for Joseph. But the family couldn't accept it. It's a bit like that with Jesus too, wasn't it? You remember at the height of his popularity when he would draw huge crowds from across the country and beyond? When he came back to his own hometown, he was rejected by the people there. That they couldn't accept that this boy who grown up among them, Joseph and Mary's son, whose, whose brothers and sisters they knew, was, was someone special. And in fact, in our gospel reading today, we read later on, even his own brothers were rejecting him. Well, Joseph's brothers are really mad with him now. But at the end of verse 11, the father 
keeps it at the back of his mind. After all, Jacob himself had met God in a dream many years earlier. So maybe, just maybe, something was going on here. And our next point, we see that sometime later, the brothers go to graze their father's flock near Shechem. That's about 80 kilometers north of the valley of Hebron where they are living. And for some reason, Jacob is worried about them. And he says to Joseph in verse 13, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And Joseph is always willing to do his father's will. He says at the end of verse 13, Here I am. Here I am. He's ready to obey. The father says, Go now. See if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. And so Joseph is sent by the father for the sake of those disobedient brothers. Now, it might have been a bit hard for Joseph, isn't it, to go because, well, he knows that these brothers don't like him. And yet here he's been asked to go on this long trip to make sure they are okay. But he does it in obedience to his father. And friends, there will be times when we will be called upon to do good things for people whom we know don't like us, who might be rude to us, who might have wronged us in some way. But we will do that because we are disciples of Jesus. And we seek to follow Jesus' example. Jesus was always ready to obey his father's will. He was sent by his Father to a sinful world for the sake of arrogant and rebellious people like us. Like Joseph, Jesus came in obedience to his Father. In verse 15, Joseph is wandering around the fields of Shechem, can't find the brothers. And then a man whom we know nothing about finds him. And he says to him, what are you seeking? And Joseph explains, I am seeking my brothers. Tell me please where they are pasturing the flock. And the man says, they've gone away for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. That's about 22 kilometers north of that place. Now, does that seem strange to you? It may be coincidental that this man happened to meet Joseph and this man happened to have seen the brothers and happened to have heard the conversation. But nothing in this world is really coincidental. It's under God's sovereignty, isn't it? It does strike us that the last time we met an unnamed man in Genesis turned out to be God wrestling with Jacob. We can't be sure who this man is, but, but whoever it is, the story really suggests that Joseph is intended to find his brothers. And then the scene switches to Joseph's brothers, where they are near Dotham. And we stand with the brothers, and we see Joseph coming in the distance, 
wearing that hated robe. And as he comes, we, we hear the brothers beginning to conspire. They, they, they pack up in verse 19. They say, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him. Throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. Then Reuben, the oldest one, does the big brother thing here. He says in verse 21, let's not take his life. Shed no blood. Okay, throw him into this pit in the wilderness, but, but don't lay a hand on him. He plans to rescue him afterwards. He'll go along with him for a while, but then he'll come back and rescue. But there's no time to argue. Joseph's approaching, so, so the brothers go along, and at least to start with. And once he's in the pit, then they can decide what to do. And so Joseph arrives, and imagine to his surprise, instead of greeting him, what do the brothers do? They strip him of his robe, that special one from the father, they take him and they dump him in the dry pit. Now at this stage, we don't know how Joseph responds, but years later, the brothers would remember his distress and how he pleaded with them for his life. And this would haunt their consciences. But right now, what they do is sit down to lunch. Maybe to even eat the rations that Joseph brought them from Jacob. But their problem is still not resolved. What are they going to do with Joseph? Will they kill him? Will they leave him there to die? What are they going to do now? Well, as they're eating, they look up and they see in the distance this caravan of nomadic traders called Ishmaelites or Midianites who are heading to Egypt with spices and herbs. Another coincidence. And Judah has an idea. He says to his brothers in verse 26, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. Well, that seems to be a good solution, isn't it? At least for them. They don't have to kill him. He is their brother. They could sell him into slavery instead, which is a little bit more palatable and, and actually quite profitable. And so they sell him to these merchants for 20 shekels of silver, which is the typical price for a slave at the time, and a bit of a windfall for them, given that the wages of a hired shepherd of the time was about eight shekels a year. And so the traders take Joseph with them as they, as they head towards Egypt. And then Reuben, who wasn't there, presumably had to go and excuse himself for a little while, he comes back to the pit, and he realizes that Joseph's gone. He tears his clothes in mourning, and he goes back to his brothers, and he cries out in verse 30, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? How can I, how, how can I go home without him? How can I face my father? But he has to. They'll all have to. What are they going to do now? Well, you remember from last year how Jacob in his younger days was a deceiver and a cheat? Remember how he deceived his own father? Well, these boys are a chip off the old block. For they take Joseph's robe, 
slaughter a goat and dip the robe in its blood and they take it back to their father to trick him they say in verse 32 this we have found please identify whether it's your son's robe or not and Jacob picks up the robe and he says this is my son's robe a fierce animal has devoured him Joseph is without doubt torn into pieces And overwhelmed with grief, Jacob tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth, and he mourns for many days. This old man's heart is broken. He will not be comforted by any of his sons or daughters. No, no, he says in verse 35, I shall go down to Sheol, to the grave, to my son, mourning. He will never recover, he says. And the father weeps for his beloved son. Many years later, another son would be rejected by his brothers. For once again, the children of Israel, the sons of Jacob, would turn, again the, turn against the one the father sent them. Jesus would be handed over to the Gentiles, just like Joseph was. But this son would not only seem to have been killed, for in, but indeed he would be. And yet his death would be proof of his father's love for all his children. For unlike the father in this story, God the Father sent His Son not just to check up on His people, but to actually die for them. Jesus came into this world to die on the cross to, to pay the penalty of our sins on our behalf. So that we, who are as guilty of sin as these brothers were, could be forgiven. Could be forgiven and restored to the Father. Jesus died so that he could bring a good report, not a bad report of us, to his Father. So that he could say about each one of us who put our trust in him, that we are holy and blameless because we are forgiven through his blood. God the Father shows his love for us in the death of his Son. At the end of the chapter, Joseph reaches Egypt and the traders sell him to a man named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh. He's alive, the dreams have not been killed. And yet on the other hand, at this point, it is very hard to see how they could ever be fulfilled. Now, of course, this is just the first part of the story, isn't it? The story goes from Genesis 37 all the way to chapter 50, and now we've only done 37. But even as we just think at this part, let me ask you, where is God in this story? Where is God? Because, you know, when you look at the narrative, He's not mentioned. 
There are some dreams, but at this stage we don't know what to make of them. There is a strange man, but we still don't know who he is. And even and if we do, remember what he does? He tells Joseph where to find the brothers, and then they go and sell him into slavery. How can God let that happen? We look at the situation, it seems so awfully horrendous. And if, and if we were Joseph, we would be tempted to despair. We don't know what God is doing. It feels like he's absent. And you know, we might have thought the same thing if we looked at the events of Good Friday in a similar way. When wicked men did terrible, terrible things to Jesus, treated him with blatant injustice, tortured him, crucified him. Seems so awfully horrendous. And as Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We might be tempted to despair. It looks like God is absent. And you know, friends, there are times in our own lives when it's like that too, isn't there? Times when we go through suffering, when we face injustice, and we don't know what God is doing, it feels like He's not there, or if He's, if he's there, He doesn't care. And we look at the situation, it looks so awfully horrendous, and, and we are tempted to despair. We don't know what God is doing. It seems like He is absent. But in Joseph's story, you know, if we keep on following to the end of the story, we'll be able to see that God is actually working here. Joseph, many, many, many years later, will be able to look back at the events that we've just read about and say to the brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Even as those brothers did all those terrible things, God was still in control. Nothing escapes his plan. He's still working good for his people. Through his suffering, Joseph was going to be exalted. And God's people were going to be saved from a famine that they didn't even know was coming. So that the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob might be fulfilled. That the family might survive and bring blessing to the nations by helping them through the famine. And because the family survived because of the suffering of Joseph, that line would ultimately reach Jesus 1,900 years later. And through Jesus, all the families of the earth are now being blessed. In those, even in those terrible things that were happening, God was working for good. Now, you can only see that clearly if you zoom forward to Genesis 50, at the end of the story. Right now, it seems as if God is absent even though actually he's working for good. Same thing with the sufferings of Jesus. Jesus was put to death by evil men. Listen to what Peter says on the day of Pentecost. He says in Acts 2.23, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified him and killed him by the hands of evil men. See that? God's plan God's foreknowledge, God hasn't lost control, and yet these evil men are doing evil things to Jesus. And yet at the same time, God is fulfilling his good purposes. In the death of Jesus, God was working good for his people. Because of his faithful suffering, Jesus would be exalted to the highest place, and God's people would be saved from sin and death and hell. Even in those terrible things that are happening at the crucifixion, 
God is working for good. And yet you can only see that clearly if you zoom forward to the resurrection and the ascension and the second coming. When you're standing there at Good Friday, seems like God is absent. But actually, He's at work for the good of His people. And my Christian brother and sister, I don't know what's happening in your life right now, but you may feel very much like Joseph, abandoned, rejected, betrayed, victim of injustice. You might be crying out, why me? It's not fair. When you look at your life, when you look at your circumstances, it seems like God is absent or he doesn't care. But we have God's word. Romans 8.28 tells us that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. No matter how unlikely it seems, God is bringing good out of evil. The evil is no less evil. The pain is no less painful. The injustice is no less unjust. God will judge those who will do you evil. But the paradox the Bible keeps on presenting us is that both human evil, which is accountable and will be judged, and yet God's good plans are being carried out in that same time, in the same events. God is working for your good. And your ultimate good is that you become more and more like Jesus and ultimately join him in glory. It was true in this story. It was true at the cross. And it's true in your life and mine. You may not be able to see it now. There may be times when it looks like God is absent. But actually, he's working for our good. And one day, whether on this side of death or the other, what God is doing will be made plain. And now we just got to keep on trusting Him and obeying His word. Remember what we sometimes sing? Be still, my soul, thy God shall undertake to guide the future as He has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All that is hidden shall be seen at last. Finally, though, let me remind us that Joseph is not actually the person that we are most similar to in this story. We've seen so clearly that Joseph points forward to Christ. And yes, as far as we are in Christ and we are following Christ, there are, there are lessons that we can apply to ourselves. But, but in and of ourselves, as the sinful people of this world, in and of ourselves, who are we actually like in the story? Where do we fit in, really? We're like the brothers, aren't we? We're the people who are meant to love and obey our Heavenly Father. But our actions are such that, that we deserve a bad report. We think that we deserve a special treatment, but, but actually we deserve God's punishment. So often we reject the instructions of his chosen son, the Lord Jesus, who is meant to reign over us. And instead we do the things that our sinful hearts desire. Uh, sometimes, like the brothers, we, we even purposely do the wrong thing because we don't want to submit to Jesus. 
Sometimes like Reuben, we kind of cave into peer pressure and then hope we can fix things afterwards. But we can't. And we cover up our sin with deceit and break the heart of our Heavenly Father. But remember Joseph's dream? He dreamed that his brothers would all bow before him one day. And friends, that's what we need to do. The Son who died for our sins has now been exalted. And God the Father commands that at the name of Jesus, every knee must bow. So let us bow the knee to Jesus our Savior. And if there's any part of our lives that we have not surrendered to Him, let's do so today. Let's stop rebelling. Turn from whatever sin it is that we are harboring and give Him His rightful place in our lives. For He deserves it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is your beloved Son and that he came into this world for us. We confess that we have rejected him in many different ways and we pray that you help us this morning to bow the knee to him. Not just externally, but, but in spirit giving our whole lives for His service. Not just as a matter of formality, but in truth, as a heartfelt surrender to His loving rule. And we thank You, Father, that You are a God who brings good out of evil. Thank You for bringing good out of Joseph's sufferings. And thank you ultimately for saving us through the suffering of Jesus. Please help us to trust you that you're in control and that no matter what happens, you will work out all things for the good of those who love you. So help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.